The first gospel reading is from Mark 10, verse 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and bless them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to can't begin. <laughs> the second New Testament lesson is from the very end of Luke. Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 44. It's on page 1061 of your Bibles. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is also the word of the Lord. Good morning, Sherman. Um, (laughs) Today is uh, Ascension Sunday, uh, as you may have gathered from the scripture text. Um, It's the day that we celebrate that Jesus went away. Um, In the Ascension, as you just heard Jane read, Jesus floated up into the sky and was hidden by a cloud. It's kind of strange. Um, 
And, you know, in Luke, uh, he's super nice to the disciples in how he tells their reaction. We just read that he worshipped them, um, or that they worshipped him, just in response to this strange sight the disciples worshipped. In John, however, it says that they just stared up into the clouds until God sent a couple of angels to tell them to knock it off and go do something else. Um, I'm sure it was a strange moment for them, right? It's still strange. Um, I mean, both what happened is strange and also that it's supposed to be a good thing. I mean, don't you think it might have been better if Jesus had stayed? Like, when you're sitting in prayer and just trying your best to listen to what God might be saying to you, don't you kind of wish that you were talking to someone who is physically in the room? Like that he could hold you with actual arms and answer you with actual vocal cords. Um, But in John 16, Jesus says that it is good that he is going away because then he will send the Spirit. St. Augustine, sorry, there's something sticking out here. I just got to fix it. Okay, St. Augustine said it this way. He said, um, you ascended before our eyes and we turned back grieving, only to find you in our hearts. Or also he said um, that now because of the ascension, because the spirit lives in us, God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. Before the ascension, Jesus was just one guy, right, like a real human person. Um, He is also God, but he chose to be limited by a body. Like I sometimes, Like, don't think about that in my longings for Jesus to be physically present. But he couldn't possibly be with me in that way and also with everyone else praying with that same longing because he's limited by a physical body. You know, when he was here, he had the 12, but only 12. In part because one person can only have so many meaningful relationships. You know, he had the larger group of the 70 who followed him, but they couldn't get quite so close. And then there were the crowds who followed at a distance. One person can only do so much. He was limited. Like, it's one thing to hear or to read Jesus saying, forgive, 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 like the crowds might have heard him. And it's entirely another to be Peter, to have betrayed Jesus in Jesus' darkest hour when you swore up and down that you wouldn't. And then in your shame, to have him seek you out on the beach and serve you breakfast and call you by name and extend forgiveness right to your face. Only a very few could experience that when Jesus walked around 2,000 years ago. But through the Spirit, we can all know Jesus' extended hand welcoming us The Spirit speaks to us, each of us, by name. Calls and woos and guides, corrects and teaches and comforts us all. And the Spirit gives us the power to extend that same thing to one another in the flesh. One pastor said, um, it's less like Jesus floated off and more like he exploded. Um, Now he's not in one particular place, now he's in every place. By the power of the Spirit, Christ lives in you. Because of the ascension, 
God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. And that, however slowly, however many steps forward and steps back we take, that shapes us into little Christs. That's C.S. Lewis's line, little Christs. We become like Jesus. And then Jesus' influence now can move beyond just 12 or 70 or a distant crowd because we are his body now. Through us, through all of those who follow him, Jesus' presence can be felt physically, palpably, and personally. Another writer called the Ascension the Great Delegation. Jesus delegates his ministry to us, to each of you. It's like kind of a strange choice to let the church take over Jesus' ministry. Um, I mean, even though there are more of us, uh, we're just not quite as good at it as Jesus is. Um, <laughs> Philip Yancey said that um, this is one of his, the greatest obstacles to his faith. Um, and I think probably a lot of you would say the same thing. I know a lot of people leave because of the failings of the church. Um, sometimes the church just looks so little like Jesus. Yancey says Christ left the keys to the kingdom in fumbling hands, which is like such an enormous understatement. Hey, Oski, you need to go back down, babe. Okay, but this isn't a good time for it. Go on. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad they feel comfortable. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Okay. Jesus left the keys to the kingdom in fumbling hands, which is an understatement, right? Like, how easy is it to call to mind these just so many failings of the church, right? The Inquisition, the Crusades, uh, the Catholic abuse scandal more recently, and more, even more recently, this, the uh, report that just came out about the Southern Baptist Convention. Like, we have fumbled a lot. And it's not just the huge mistakes either. Like every congregation I've ever been a part of has struggled just to get along. We struggle to forgive even the tiniest of slights. We struggle to love one another. And yet, this is what Jesus chose. He delegated to us, and for the last 2,000 years, even with all of this fumbling, great and small, Jesus has not changed his mind. And isn't it always that way with God's mercy? It's always so strange that God never makes the choices that we would make. Why build a nation out of, like, an elderly couple, two old to have children. And neither Abraham nor Sarah were particularly righteous. Like, why choose them? Why not start young and healthy or like at least holy? And why only one child then? It's just so small and so slow. And later, when God looked for a king for the nation that was built for Israel, God chose the youngest and the shortest, the one that no one thought would amount to anything. Like, why him? And why say that the poor are blessed? And why those who mourn? That God's mercy is always just a little strange. 
God's always about humility and smallness and weakness. The mustard seed hidden in the soil, a treasure buried in a field, and one lost sheep. God doesn't seem to give a rip about the things that we think are important, like strength and power and efficiency. God is about the weak shaming the strong and life through death, the most unlikely path. Like we screw it up all the time, but in the logic of God's mercy, who knows? For whatever reason, God chose Peter, the flippant hothead who denied him three times to be the rock on which he built the church. And throughout history, the plan just hasn't changed. For 2,000 years, God has allowed the church, chosen the church to preach and teach and mess up trying to proclaim mercy. And in that mercy, God has not given up on us. You have been chosen for this work to proclaim through our words and more so through our lives that Jesus is Lord. To be Jesus' hands and feet in this world. Even with all of our foibles and failings, that is God's wisdom. And it has always been a little bit strange. And actually, all of this is just more evidence of God's grace. I mean, it drives me crazy that the church can't get its act together. And also, that's how I know I won't get kicked out. (laughs) I can't get my act together either most of the time. But I am safe in God's wide and patient welcome. And so are you. The church has really bungled things. And that is just another witness to the love and patience of our God. Love that truly does not fail. The message that Jesus gives us to proclaim in our passage is is repentance and forgiveness of sins. Like, who better to do that than a bunch of repentant, forgiven sinners? In fact, who could do it but us? Right? We are the witnesses, the passage says, meaning we're the ones who've experienced it, and so we can tell about it. A bunch of perfect people don't know the first thing about grace, plus they also don't exist. It's those who think that they're perfect that have the least patience with others. Only a forgiven people can witness to the generosity of God. And it's not just the preaching of repentance and forgiveness of sins that Jesus delegates to us, though that's what's mentioned in this passage. He calls us to carry on the whole mission of redeeming the world. His mission of healing and peacemaking, of caring for the least of these, of setting the captives free in a hundred thousand different ways. Um, This is a bit of an aside, but I wanted to talk about this, um, so I'm going to... (laughs) Uh, because I have the microphone. Um, <laughs> now we had Hazel read the, um, I mean, she signed up for scripture reading at the, uh, at the ministry fair last week, so we had her read this, the passage about the little children coming to Jesus, in part thinking about Texas. Um, and because I wanted to be able to talk about it, uh, 
What does it mean for those who've been delegated the ministry of Jesus to respond to something like that? Um, like my, my main response this week has just been a, a feeling of helplessness, like knowing exactly what's going to happen next. Oh, the conversation's going to go back and forth. It's guns. No, it's not guns. It's mental health and the so on and on. And like, is anything going to come of it this time? I don't know. And so how do we, little Christs, do something different? And we've been tossing around some ideas in the office, and I'm not going to get into those now. Maybe something will come of them. I don't know. But one thing that I wanted to mention here, um, I've been reading a book about parenting called Parenting Without Power Struggles. Um, it's pretty good. If you have power struggles, you can read it. Uh, <laughs> But the author makes the case that, um, in one chapter, the author makes the case that to be healthy, kids need like, secure attachments to their parents. And there's a bunch of different components of what that means. But they, they need to basically be know, they basi- basically need to know that they're loved, that they're known, that they're important, that they have someone on their side. Um, she also says that that's not enough. She says that our kids need that kind of secure attachment with a bunch of different adults. You know, like, it takes a village. Um, But we're not a culture that really gets the village. We really like just the nuclear family. Um, But you know who does get the idea of the village? The church. Right? We all, when we baptize kids, we make vows to them. We say, we will pray for you and encourage you and love you. We will be part of your life. Some of us are really good at that. And I think lots of us don't do much in that direction. Um, I am terrified of kids, so... (laughs) So, like, I avoid some things or my conversations are awkward or whatever. Um... But I think this is worth asking this question. Do our kids have meaningful relationships with adults in our congregation, like not just their parents? And I'm not talking about like Sunday school teachers or mentors. I'm just talking about being with kids, like being a community together, that they might know that someone wants to know them and thinks it's important that they're there, not without needing to teach them something or give them constant advice. Like, here is one way that we can put our efforts into creating something beautiful in the face of such terror. Because that shooter was just a kid. And I'm willing to bet that he didn't feel like he had anyone he could turn to when things were hard. Anyone who would listen to him and understand him. Anyone who had worked hard to know him, even when he tried to put them off. It's not going to solve the world's problems. And we can still advocate and do all sorts of other things, but here is one small and hidden way that we can push up against the absolute grief of this week. Have a conversation. Find something in common with a kid. If you need... (laughs) someone to help you along with that, you know, you can volunteer. There are, like, structured ways to get involved in kids' lives. You can show our kids that God delights in them by delighting in them yourself. 
it's hard, because at least for me, I'm terrified, you know, but we can do hard things. <laughs> um, they will know we are Christians by our love. But whatever love we offer, that's the end of my aside, now I'm back. <laughs> whatever love we offer, it begins first with God's love for us. And that love is most clearly seen in the forgiveness that we proclaim. When we find ourselves entirely seen and safe, loved and held fast. That's what makes a way for any of the callings that we might fill. The humility and gratitude that is birthed in the face of forgiveness sets the groundwork for any loving action that will follow. It assures us that we will not drown in cynicism or righteous anger. That we will not hide our heads in the sand for fear of making mistakes. To the degree that we know the depth of the grace that has been extended to us, we will be able to extend it to others. Even as we seek justice and call a sick world to repentance, Forgiveness really is like the most amazing thing. You know, some people imagine that God just wanted us to like feel guilty all the time and they rag on the church for that. It's just really not what grace is about. Grace is about a God who refuses, absolutely refuses to give up on you. The cross means that Jesus would rather die than give up on you. That he will do whatever it takes to call you his beloved. And he did. Grace is not kneeling on a hard floor, listing your sins, and hoping against hope that God might shrug you off with an okay fine. Grace is dancing in an open field. Grace is stretching out your arms and breathing deeply of the love of a God who will not let you go knowing that freedom and feeling it change you from the inside out. It is a love that brings tears to your eyes because you can see all the ways that you don't deserve it. How you have hurt and wounded others and still it comes. And it comes without restraint and it comes without reluctance or hesitation or backhanded, I told you so. Grace runs to you while you are still rehearsing your apology. Before you even have the chance to give it, it throws its arms around you and welcomes you home. No one but Peter got to be on the beach that day with Jesus, receiving forgiveness from him in the flesh. But we can be rocked by forgiveness all the same when we hurt someone and find the grace of Christ, Christ extended to us through them. Um, I'm gonna tell a story about Tony, which I feel a little sheepish about because I think I keep saying like lots of really nice things about Tony. Uh, I promise to balance it out by saying some mean things in future sermons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm not gonna do that. But he has struggles, we can all just, you know, he's not perfect. He's pretty good. Um, anyway, <laughs> at our wedding, um, his cousin Sean, uh, which was, who was one of our best men, 
we had two, because uh, Tony couldn't decide. Um, there's one of his difficulties. Um, <laughs> one of his best men gave this like really beautiful speech. Um, and I wanted to read a section of, of it to you. He was searching out how to describe Tony, and he said that for him, one story always stood out. Um, so here's what he said. So this is Sean. When we were sophomores in college, Tony got a moped for Christmas from Uncle Jack and Aunt Wendy. That's Tony's parents. Um, Tony let me ride it down Kendall Street. I accelerated as I was braking and drove the moped directly into a parked car. Tony ran up to me laughing. One friend was relentless with me and said to me later that night in front of a large group, Sean, I'll stop giving you a hard time about the moped when you stop being so mean to Tony. I left angry and embarrassed. He was right. Some things had happened between Tony and me and I had not been gracious or kind or even very nice to him. I had betrayed him and our friend named it. The next day after philosophy class, Tony approached and said that he did not share our friend's feelings. Tony said, I know he's right about some of the things he said about you, but I just want you to know that I don't hold any of it against you. And I learned one of the most important lessons of my life that day. And that's the day I started to know Tony. Who is Tony? He is the one who will refuse to let your offense interrupt his love for you. Who will continue to see who you really are even when you betray yourself and him. And who does so without humiliating you. Sean teared up telling the story years later. Because forgiveness is so beautiful and so total. Just when you expect to be kicked to the curb, it pulls you back in. And you never quite recover from a love like that. That is a gift that all of you can give. And it teaches people about Jesus in a way nothing else will. Because it is, it is who Jesus is. And when you give it, people feel his presence. Palpably, like Peter felt it on that beach. Jesus is the one who will refuse to let your offenses interrupt his love for you. Who will continue to see who you really are even when you betray yourself and him. And who does so without humiliating you. Like Tony did for Sean, we can extend that to the world. It is that kind of experience that heals our wounds and heals our relationships. But there's something in our soul that is stitched together in moments like that. Like if, you've, if you've ever been on the receiving end of that kind of forgiveness, then maybe you know how difficult it can be to accept. Like painful even, like searing. It makes us acknowledge the truth, but doesn't allow us to wallow in self-pity or shame. It draws out tremendous humility and it cleanses and purifies at the same time. We become more ourselves in its wake. It reveals our darkness even as it calls us into the light. 
Offering forgiveness doesn't require a great education or a fancy job or lots of money. You don't have to be like good looking or stylish. But it does require you to press into the heart of Jesus so that you can know his grace deep in your bones. I think that's the only way anyone can do it. You have to be a witness to what he has done for you. It can be very difficult, but it is a gift that each of you can give. By the power of the Spirit, we all become little Christs. We are all shaped and transformed to be like him in this world so that the world can hear and experience repentance and forgiveness of sins. Not just the 12 or the 70 or a crowd somewhere, but to the ends of the earth. The more you know that grace for yourself, the more you will give it to others. The more forgiveness of sins will flow through you to the world so that you will not just proclaim it with your words, but with your whole body and soul, as Jesus did. If what I'm talking about seems like a little distant for you, like it's not something that you know, then maybe you need to press into it. I mean, that's what we try to do with confession. Um, But there's something, too, about spending that time on your own. I mean, even if you do know it, you need to press into it. You know, this is how we are formed. We pray, we confess, we revel in that freedom. We give thanks, we study, we worship. We do our best to obey. And as we do all those things, we learn about who God is and who we are and what this world was meant to be. We learn to live into God's kingdom now. We learn to walk in step with the Spirit We learn to witness to God's grace with our very lives. The truth is that Jesus didn't leave us on that day when he floated up into the clouds. Jesus is still here in you. Please pray with me. Oh, thank God that you continue to forgive us. That you continue to call us despite our fumbling hands. Lord, may we know your just incredible gift. How high and how wide and how deep is your love. Lord, have mercy on us all, and may we have mercy on one another. In Jesus' name, amen.